Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. We are continuing in a series we started a few weeks ago, walking through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chronological order, uh, to get an understanding of what is the gospel. And again, we said it's, if you don't know Jesus Christ, here's what Jesus wants to say to you, the good news he wants to share with you. Uh, and if you do know Jesus Christ, here's what Jesus wants you to tell others about him. And last week, we specifically were looking at how Jesus ministered to other people and to the church and one of the most prevalent ways that Jesus ministered to people was one-on-one. If you look throughout uh, the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, what we call the Gospels, uh, over and over again, although you see Jesus preaching to lots of people and talking in crowds, you see him breaking away time after time and going to one individual to heal them, to talk to them, to minister to them, to serve them one-on-one. And the best type of ministry is when you spend time talking to, serving, and ministering to people one-on-one. So uh, we're going to look at that in more detail today because uh, what we're about to look at, some of you are familiar with, some of you may not be, but we're going to walk through it, uh, is one of the most powerful uh, types of ministry or types of ministering that Jesus did uh, when he went to talk to, and some of you are familiar with uh, this account, the woman by the well in Samaria. Uh, So if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of John chapter 4, John chapter 4, and we're going to walk through these verses. Now, I'm going to put the verses up here on the screen, but I want you to have your Bible out because there's specific things. If you're a you know, a highlighter or an underliner, I want you to highlight and underline specific things that are truly important uh, to what Jesus was doing, all right? So in John chapter 4, starting at verse 1, it says, The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, Judea was an area, and I, I couldn't necessarily call it a county, but if you think of like Allegheny County, uh, when someone comes to Allegheny County, they're not coming to a specific city named Allegheny. They're just coming to an area called Allegheny. Galilee was the same thing. It was the area, although it was there was the Sea of Galilee, and there was all these other places in it. And in Galilee, the main place that Jesus went, uh, for lack of a better term, his base of operations uh, was a city called Capernaum. Caperna- Caperna- Capernaum, I was going to say Copernicus, but that's a totally different thing. Capernaum, uh, that was his main base where he hung out and where he did a lot of his ministry from. So in verse 4, it says, now he had to go through Samaria. Underline, if you have a King James Version, it says he must need. If you have some other version, all of them indicate that there was a pressing specific reason for Jesus to go to Samaria. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, okay? So that makes it about noon. Now, um, they didn't have GPS back then. They didn't have cars, and they're, you know, 
Camels were only for the rich people. So most of their traveling, almost all, like 99.9% of their traveling that Jesus and his disciples did, if it wasn't by boat to cross a river, it was by foot they walked. So let me show you this and point this out on a map. I don't know if you can see it, but way down here where the red arrow is, that is Jerusalem in the area called Judea. I don't know if you can, uh, let me see if I can. In this area called Judea, uh, this right here is Jerusalem. And he hung out in a Judean hill, Judean desert, and there's Jericho. But this is Jerusalem, okay? For him to travel, or he and his people, to Capernaum, which is up here near this red arrow, uh, just to go through Sychar and go to Capernaum was about 90 miles, okay? Quite the walk if you're walking it. I mean, just just think of uh, a 24-mile marathon. When they run that, they takes couple of hours. Some people do it in, the crazy people do it in under three. I don't know what's gotten into them. Uh, the normal people do it in like, you know, somewhere between four-ish and five-ish. And then the people like me come back the next day to finish it up because we just don't run. We run like turtles stampeding through peanut butter. We just, we're just not good at it. But 90 miles, three to four days to walk through it, okay? And the most direct route right through, you know, right through the, the city called Sychar, the town called Sychar, straight up into the area called Galilee. But most of the Jewish people didn't take that direct route. They would go around the area of Samaria, going along the Mediterranean Sea or some along the Jordan River uh, over here. This is the Jordan River. So some would go either along this side or some would go either up and around that side, which made it about 120 mile trip. Some cases taking them like about five to six days. Now, the reason they did this is because they had a lot of, uh, let's say, anxiety and, and, and uh, I don't want to say hatred, but uh, deep-seated separation for the people of Samaria, okay? The Jewish people did not like the people of Samaria, who, by the way, technically, were Jewish. And here's why, a little history lesson, bear with me, okay? Uh, back in um, Old Testament times, northern Israel, southern Judah, the whole land of Israel was divided by where you see this little red line uh, right about here. So the top portion, the northern portion, was called Israel. The southern portion was called Judah. In 722 B.C., when the Assyrians came in, uh, they captured all of the northern portion, because they were two separate countries, even though they were one, they split, they were two separate countries, they captured the northern portion, and they sent a lot of their people into the heavily populated area of Samaria to live with the Jewish people that they left alive, and most of those Jewish people were either poor or, or, or farmers who could barely make ends meet, everyone else who was anyone they killed or they took back to Assyria. And over time, those people who were in the northern area of Samaria that were from Assyria, over time, they began to intermix some of the Assyrian beliefs with the Jewish beliefs, even though there were still some Jewish people there. Some of the Assyrian people married some of the Jewish people, and they had descendants. And so what happened was the Jewish people started to hate... I don't want to use the word hate, but that's the only word I can think of. Um, 
the people of Samaria because they were like, you're not real Jews. So here's what happened. They began to look at people who were just like them, and they began to say, hey, you have a different culture, so we're going to you know, hold you off. We're going to ignore you. We're going to ostracize you. You have somewhat different religious beliefs, so we're going to ignore you. We're going to avoid you. We're going to ostracize you. You're of a somewhat different race, so we're going to hold you off. We're going to ignore you, and we're going to ostracize you. And they had mixed feelings uh, about their devotion uh, about the people of Samaria. Now, pretend I'm hopping on a soapbox for a minute, okay? Because uh, how many of you guys heard about the other shooting, the latest shooting, uh, Portland, Oregon, and, and a guy walks in, you know, and I think it was an adult and a, a student both killed. And, and I'm not trying to justify it, okay? But usually when you're, you're in a school environment, It's hard enough to try to get through the school day just trying to worry about your books, your tests, and and, and other kids making fun of you without having to worry about someone from outside the school coming into the school to try to take your life. And when you look at the last over and over again, just in the last couple of years, not even, you don't got to go back 20 years, just go back three to five years at the number of of school shootings and stabbings that take place, even though this was a guy from, uh, uh, I don't know if it was a student or not that did this one, but most of the other ones were students who, for whatever reason, were ostracized because they had a different culture. Maybe they were like goth or maybe they were geeks or whatever, and people made fun of them. They were ostracized because of they were a different race or religion or whatever, and they felt They had no other recourse but to come in and retaliate at the people who were pushing them around, making fun of them, and bullying them. And our kids already have enough to worry about without having to worry about, is someone going to come in? Not only am I going to pass this test that I'm taking now, am I going to live past this test? And we as a culture have to change our priorities. If we don't make having our kids be able to be educated in a safe place a top priority, we're not going to have a lot of kids left because the ones that do want to go get educated are going to stop because they're scared. And the ones that don't want to go get educated are going to turn into the ones going in and causing these kind of things. We as a culture, I mean, it's, it's, there's no way, we can't, I mean, we could try to blame TV, we could try to blame gun laws. You can't blame gun laws because the guy who stabbed all of those in Franklin wasn't carrying a gun. We have to make it a priority to look at, and we can't say everything is mental health, but we as, ha- have to make it a priority to look at what decisions are we as a culture making and what decisions are we not making that's having an impact on our children where they feel like the only thing I have left to do is to go in and try to take all of your lives and then take mine. I'm not a counselor. I'm, 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 I'm not a, you know, a therapist. But to me, that says that that child somewhere has thought 
that because, and again, I'm not justifying it, because all these people are making fun of him or doing whatever, he has been made to feel like none of their lives are worth too much and his life isn't worth too much. And that is not the way it should be. And I realize I'm talking to, you know, like people in here and we're like, hey, what, what, what can we do about it? All we can do is somehow make it, first of all, pray. Uh, pray for the families again and um, make it a habit. Uh, and I, th- I forget who it was. Maybe it was Shirley or someone else that said, make it a habit that every morning, even if you don't have kids going off to school, pray for all the kids that are going off to school. Pray that they get there safely. Pray that the bus driver's not crazy or drunk or hungover. Pray that the teachers aren't crazy or drunk or hungover. Pray that the kids aren't crazy or drunk or hungover. Just, just pray for our youth because we are losing them like crazy. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. I'm going to get back to the message. Sorry. Happy Father's Day, by the way. All right. So in this case, in this case, a whole region was ostracized because they had a different culture, because they had a different belief system, because they had a different uh, uh, race, for lack of a better term. And this was done by church folk. I mean, this, this, this wasn't like people who didn't know God that were doing it. These were the main people who claimed to know the one true God who were looking at other people and, and, and holding them in this light. And so Jesus went to Samaria to minister to the needs of the people there. He went there, and, and we're going to look at this in plain view. He went there to show them that they were accepted. He went to minister um, to their spiritual needs because this is a whole area that's separated from God. They had mixed beliefs and misunderstandings about who God was, but also to minister to their physical belief because this was a whole region of people that felt like we are not accepted. Imagine, imagine if throughout all of Allegheny County, for whatever reason, everyone in Allegheny County was treated like we are not real Americans. I mean, how would you feel if the entire rest of the nation avoided Allegheny County, talked about Allegheny County, and treated everyone within the county as, hey, I don't know what you guys call yourselves, but you're not real Americans. I know most of you would kind of chalk it up to steal or envy, but that might not be the case. All right, but so let me summarize. He gets there, he gets there, he says, I've got to go to Samaria. Jesus gets there, and a woman comes out, to draw water from the well. And they begin to dialogue with one another. So uh, drop down if you're following in your Bible to verse 13. They began talking and Jesus spoke to her. Jesus answered, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water at the well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Now, underline that word whoever like two or three times because repeatedly people will say, that Christianity is so, like, exclusive. It keeps everybody out. But Jesus is making it clear. It is the most inclusive, organized religion on the planet because he says it's open to whoever. It's not only open to rich people. It's not only open to poor people. It's not only open to white people. It's not only open to black people. It doesn't matter what race you are. doesn't matter what nationality you are. doesn't matter if you make a lot of money. doesn't matter what denomination you want to attend. Jesus says it is open to whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Now, indeed, the water and the water, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit because whoever 
believes in him, he fills them with his Holy Spirit. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, again, Jesus is talking about spiritual things. She's looking for physical things. She's looking for, hey, it's a hard life out here. I got to lug this jug all the way to the well. I got to fill it up. And if you're telling me that like I could have like something called a faucet in my house and constantly get water, that would be so convenient. She's looking for a matter of convenience. Jesus didn't come to make our lives convenient. He came to make our lives better. And usually when, what we are looking to get from Jesus, he has something so much more that he wants to give. Jesus doesn't ask anything from us. He is looking to give something to us to make our lives better and from a spiritual aspect to reconnect us with our Heavenly Father. All right, now, drop down to verse 16. He told her, go call your husband, underline that word husband. It's, it's really important that we understand what this word means. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. I didn't mean to emphasize five, sorry. Five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Now, here's why that word is so important. Because there are a lot of people, um, depending, that look at this whole passage of scripture in this whole account and say, well, it doesn't look like this woman had a sin issue in her life. I mean, you're talking about living in the desert. Men did tend to die quite often, you know, as they were working and doing stuff and traveling back and forth. So they tended to die quite frequently and it would be commonplace for a woman to then get remarried because otherwise, how is she going to survive? Or we don't know if this woman has children because it doesn't say, but if she was barren and her, you know, husband died, of course, she has no other way to live other than to uh, get married. But here's the thing. There are the other people, there are people that say, hey, this isn't a sin issue. This isn't a woman who has been promiscuous. There are the other people that walk and say, this is a woman who has been extremely promiscuous. And Jesus is saying, you've had five husbands, you know, and a whatchamacallit, or a friends with benefit, or whatever you want to call them, and, and, and you're not Live in the way that God called you to. Personally, I believe it's, 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 it's not this or that. It's somewhere in the middle because the word husband literally means a spouse, a male spouse. So he tells her, go call your male spouse and come back. Uh, and she says, hey, I, I, I don't have a husband. But Jesus says, he equates, he says, you've had five husbands, five married people that you married. But the guy that you are with now, he equates it this way. You're living with him in the same way you did with your five husbands. So from God's perspective, there is an issue of sexual immorality that's going on. But more than that, there is an issue with this woman where for whatever reason, whether it be because she feels like I, I can't make it on my own, her mentality is, hey, I can't make it without a husband. And there are women today that, that from, you know, from small, you know, women start dreaming about their wedding from like age five, six, seven, maybe 10. Men start dreaming about it when, you know, the girl says, I do. Actually, we don't even think about it then. You know, it's when we're walking down the aisle, we're like, oh, wow, this is real. But there is this disconnect between 
what our culture says and what Jesus is telling her. Our culture says, hey, sexuality is the most prevalent thing on the planet. And it's not, and, and, and I'm not, again, not trying to be down on the church. The church, you know, has this thing, we got to combat homosexuality. It's not homosexuality, it's sexuality. Because sexuality is being revealed to our children through homosexuality at earlier ages. And so, you know, there's this, this, this prevailing thought that, hey, we have to educate our youth about being okay with homosexuality. So what we do is we start, they start in the school systems educating our 9-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds about homosexuality. If you think about it, there is no reason to tell an 8, 9, or 10-year-old to start thinking about who he's going to have sex with. That's the last thing we want them thinking about. And rather than define yourself by who you're going to have sex with, you should define yourself by what you are capable of, by your capabilities, instead of who you're going to sleep with. Okay, I'm getting off of that soapbox as well. Sorry, this is a soapbox Sunday. Happy Father's Day. All right, so they begin to have this religious dialogue that basically centers around... um, who is worshiping God the correct way. This woman is literally talking to God about, I know you worship this way, but here's how I worship God. I mean, this is the, uh, granted, she doesn't know he's God, but the same is true in the church today where people literally, literally, we literally argue and debate about the way we worship God. Uh, we argue and debate about all kind of stuff. I mean, the church, if the church would come together, and, and this is just me, and, and, and if you want to, you know, literally in 10 minutes, anytime afterwards, I, I can show you this biblically. If the church would come together, we could wipe away some of the major problems in this nation. And let me, I'm not going to walk you through that whole thing, but uh, in this nation, one out of 12 people in our, on our entire planet are starving. About 870 million out of 7.1 billion are starving, not just malnutritious, not just malnutrition, starving, literally no food. There is more than enough food to feed at least one and a half times the 7.1 billion people on the planet. But yet one out of 12 people are starving. In our communities alone, just all around this area, South Hills of Pittsburgh, probably, and I'm trying to remember the statistic, probably one out of every six or seven kids will be starving this summer because they're not going to get a school lunch. That's what was feeding them. So they're not going to get a school lunch. One out of every six or seven kids just in our communities is going to be going hungry. Instead of focusing on that, if the church were unified and we focused on that, we could prevent that. Instead, we argue about what type of music we should sing in a church, whether the song should go at the beginning or the end, should it be fast, should it be slow. Um, Education-wise, we have an education system that doesn't need to be, like, fixed. It needs to be replaced because we ask our teachers to be counselors. We ask them to be security guards. We ask them to be administrators when they are supposed to be educators and we don't give them the tools and resources that they need to properly educate the children. And this is from, uh, I think it was taken in 2013, but it pulls uh, all of the data from 2012 into the beginning of ter- th- 2013 that in the world, 
the United States came up United States came up number 30 in math. That's where we rank of all the nations in the world, number 30. In science, we came up number 23. In reading, just reading, we came up number 20. We created Amazon and, 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 and all these places where you have to read to go order stuff. I mean, we created, like, people in the United States created the Kindle. We download more ebooks than anybody. But as a nation as a whole, we have difficulty in just reading. But instead of focusing on that, if the church as a whole in the United States said, hey, we're going to focus on and, and we're going to start educating, because think about it, all over the nation this morning, there are kids being educated about the Bible in Sunday school. So it's not like we don't know how to do it. We've just decided that's not where we're going to focus our time and attention. And the drug problem in the United States is out of control because we're either saying, well, we can't beat them, let's legalize it. And 23% of the young adults, the people that we are expecting to be the next doctors, lawyers, engineers, architects, politicians, and even pastors, 23% of them are all getting high and say, hey, it's okay. Which might lead to why we can't do math well or science well or read too well. All right? So all this, and instead, we decide as a church that it's not within our best interest to come together. Now, think about this. Okay, I'm going off on tangent, sorry. Think about this. Uh, how many of you have kids that have ever come up to you and said, hey, I don't want to take the bus to school anymore because I had a problem with so-and-so and we were fighting or whatever? Anyone ever had any children that say, okay. All right. When that happens, because all of my, well, Fallon didn't, but Jonathan, Brandon, they all had that. When that happens, what do we tell them? Hey, you got to make up. You got to make this right. You got to fix it. And you got to continue going to school. I mean, you can't just stop because you're not getting along with someone. Right? And that, and that makes sense. But when we're in the church and we have a problem with someone, what do we do? We switch churches. We don't go make it right. We don't go make it up. We don't go get reconciled to them. We just go find another church. And that's the message that we're sending to our children, that unity is not important. And okay, all right, sorry, I was on too many soapboxes. Let me finish. John chapter 4, drop down to verse 24. This is what Jesus tells her. God is spirit and his worshipers must. It is not optional. It is not something that you should do. Jesus says they must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Now, Jesus says you must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman says, you know what, I, I, I kind of know that because I've heard of the Messiah. When he comes, he's going to reveal everything. And Jesus said, I am here to reveal everything to you. And we said this last week, and the same is true again. God shows us over and over, we're going to see this. God wants ministry to be a revelation of him and his love. It's all about revealing the end result. The winning goal is when we say, hey, God loves you, and he sent his son to die for you. And Jesus Christ is the one who gave his life so that you can live. All right? So then, 
here's, here's what happens next. I'm going to rush just to, for the sake of time. John chapter 4. Then, leaving her water jar, and she left. Her main purpose in coming out to the well was to get water. Without water, people die in the desert, all right? Her main purpose in coming out was to get water. She left her water jar. And the reason she left it, because once she came, once Jesus reveals himself, once she accepted who he was, then we said this before, and you'll hear it over and over again. You'll see it throughout scripture. Saved people save people. When you give your heart to Jesus Christ, when you acknowledge uh, that he died for you, you acknowledge that there is a God who loves me. He sent his son to die for me. And because of his son, Jesus Christ, I can now enter into a relationship with him. When you become, that's what we call saved, then the next natural thing to do is to go and share that gospel good news with someone else. Saved people, saved people. So leaving her water jar, the women went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Everything I ever did. This is why this is important. Her understanding of everything that she ever did was the only thing Jesus told her. You had relationships with men. Her understanding of her self-identity was not about what she was capable of, was not about what she had the potential to do. It was all about a relationship with a man. And I got to tell you, there's not a man on the planet who can make a woman feel the way that God can make her feel when she enters into a relationship with him. There is absolutely nothing I can say or do to my wife that is going to come close to her relationship with Jesus Christ. And that needs to be the prevalent top priority relationship in her life. Her and Jesus way up here, her and me way down here somewhere. And it's my responsibility to make her understand, hey, it's not all about her and me. It's all about her and him. If I'm doing my job right, I'm encouraging my wife to fall madly in love with Jesus. That's what it's all. All right, let me move on because I, I feel like I'm, 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 I'm running out of time. So she said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and made they, their way toward him. The people in the town left because they also wanted to know Jesus Christ. I mean, if someone comes running to you and says, hey, I met God in the flesh. That's worth taking some time out to investigate. All right. Now. John chapter 4, 39. I'm going to ask the band to come up at this time as we wind down. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Believe it or not, and you don't have to raise your hand, but if you've ever been through some hardships that God has brought you through, and I know we feel like, uh, you know, it was, it was so bad or uh, maybe so raunchy or so foul that I don't ever want to tell anyone about that. But when you share your story, you might not just change someone's life. You could save someone's life by sharing what God has brought you through. So these people believe because of the woman's testimony who told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. Underline that. That's important. We're going to come back to that in about 37 seconds. Stayed two days. 
And because of his words, many more became believers. This is important. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. If your relationship with God is solely based on what someone told you, that's not a relationship. If your relationship with God is based solely on uh, the fact that you walk into church, that's not a relationship. Your relationship has to be on you entering into relationship with God, mano a mano, one-on-one. So we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man is really the Savior of the Lord. And for those who, who, who maybe don't know Jesus Christ, those who say, I don't have uh, a relationship, here's what God would say to you. Here's what Jesus wants you to know. Jesus went out of his way to spend time with these people that no one else would accept, no one else cared about, and no one else thought was important. And if you have ever felt like that, and we have kids covering our schools, even in this community, that feel every day no one cares about me, no one wants to be my friend, no one will accept me, no one will love me. To each and every one of them, Jesus says that no one, no one, and nothing compares to you. There's nothing more precious than you. There's nothing more important than you. There's nothing that takes away God's time other than getting to know you. And if we could get that message to our kids, we would see a totally different environment in our schools. And let me add this last verse. Because I had you underline two days, because after the two days, he left for Galilee. Jesus started, uh, we started reading through the scripture where it said he had to go through Samaria. He went there, he met the woman, he revealed himself to her, she revealed him to others, the whole town came out, they received Jesus Christ, they said, We know that he is our Lord and Savior stayed for two days ministering to them, and then he left. And, and, and this is important because I don't think it's, uh, in this case, for those of us that do know Jesus Christ, I don't think it's so much what would Jesus want us to tell others about him. I think it's more what would Jesus want us to do to others in this case. And that is for some of us because we all have people at home, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplace, the guy at work that no one wants to talk to. We need to talk to The guy on the school bus for the tech team, listen up, ears on, hey, tech team. The guy on the school bus that nobody wants to sit next with or the girl that nobody wants to talk to or the one that everyone avoids in the cafeteria, that's the person that we need to go to and say, hey, you matter to God. The guy in our neighborhoods and communities that we constantly avoid because everyone talks about him or everyone thinks he's weird. That's the guy that we need to go just like Jesus to, the guy that nobody accepts, the one that no one wants to spend their time with. Maybe God is telling us that, hey, we need to go to them and tell them about the amazing grace of God. Bow your heads with me. Lord, we pray that we would be truly, truly, truly inspired, encouraged, and excited to go out and share your word with people, to share your gospel, to share your amazing grace. And we would be inspired to reveal your truth that you would love us when we feel unlovable. You would accept us when we feel unacceptable. 
and that you ask nothing in return. God, we pray that we wouldn't just share it with uh, the people in our communities, but we would embed this in the hearts of our children, God. That they do matter. That according to you and according to your word, there is absolutely nothing that compares to them. They are worth your time and they are worth our time. God, you overcame so much. You overcame the sin that separated us. You overcame some of the hatred that some of humanity had for you and that your word says, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And God, you put your Holy Spirit on us so that we could overcome, so that we could be victorious, but also so that we could be a light to others. So we could go to those people that deem themselves unlovable, unacceptable, and unwanted. Share our stories and let them know that there is a God who loves them. A God who overcame death and the grave for them. And the God who wants to redeem them and give new life to them. God, we pray that you would bless us as we leave this place. We pray that we wouldn't leave burdened by the cares and struggles of the past or even the ones to come, but we would leave knowing that we have victory through you, through your son, Jesus Christ, through his blood he shed on the cross. God, we pray that you're exalted. We praise you and we love you and we thank you for your amazing grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Thank you guys. Pray that you have an awesome, happy Father's Day. And if any of you happen to go out and buy one of those super huge grills, especially the one that hovers, let me know because I want to come play with it. Other than that, have an awesome Sunday. See you next week. God bless.